Wednesday, May 24th, 2017, and this is episode 191 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hello, Jerry. It's good to see you. I was worried about you, man. Well, you know, Mickey Mouse, uh, uh, you know, kind of... You're deep in the mouse wars. (laughs) They're, they're but you se- made it back. Their security is much different than I remember it. But yes. as as your your tweeting was indicating that that I mean, are they? Yeah, they have metal detectors now. My my mm. in my wallet set set off the metal detector, and Mickey Mouse had to come over and frisk me. It was crazy. <laughs> what did you tell him? It's because you're carrying Bitcoin around. <laughs> we in case we know you've got the Bitcoin. Well, you never know when like it's a wonderful life will get uh, ransomware, and you gotta pay to keep it going. That's true. That's true. They should have uh, they should have Bitcoin ATMs around the park, but they don't yet. Mm. So anyway, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers, um, and probably for good reason. So, getting into some stories, and and by the way, I I, I do want to apologize for uh, the hiatus. You know, I occasionally need to take a a vacation. So so yeah. But we're back. We're back. So um, not not a whole lot happened since we, uh, you know, we talked last. There, no, there were, very quiet. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was like, you know, the, the, the whole little wanna cry thing happened. I guess there was that. So, um, so speaking of that, we have a, we have a story from Ars Technica and the title is Windows 7, not XP was the reason last week's uh, W cry worm spread so widely. And... Th- and for the record, there's about thirty-eight thousand different stories we could we could tell about this particular thing. There, it, it, it. <laughs> one one of the best tweets I saw about this was was uh, announcing that there were more uh, there were more news articles about WannaCry than there were infections. Reasonable. <laughs> and you know the the best part is. Basically, the guy who discovered this wasn't even doing the typical bad marketing behavior that companies do when they find something and and you know make a logo and a theme song and a mascot, put out press releases. Guy was just trying to help, and then you know the entire British tablet industry like doxed his life. Yeah, sanity. Anyway, it's not not the point of this story, but I feel bad for the poor guy. Absolutely. So uh... shouldn't have been that way. So anyhow, I, I assume everybody in in on Earth knows about WannaCry, but you know this was a this was a worm, which by the way, someone on Twitter pointed out that apparently we predicted this on episode one hundred eighty eight. <laughs> I think technically you did. Uh, well, anyway, um, so this so. used the Eternal Blue uh, NSA exploit right. that, that well. was released by Shadow Brokers. What, which was alleged to be an NSA exploit until one of our stories later confirmed it. Correct. That's right. In fact, that, that little tease for that story coming up confirmed so many things that we had uh, suspected but didn't know for sure that it's chock full of just juicy details. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good story. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, in the, 
in the ensuing uh, hours after after the first infections were were happening on, uh, I guess it was a week ago, Friday. Uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of discussion about how this was a uh, is this was an XP based attack. And in fact, there were a lot of stories written about the National Health Service and how horrible it was that they, uh, you know, they continued to use Windows XP, and that was why they had shuttered their operations in response to this attack, and blah blah blah. And as it turns out, in the you know in, in the actual analysis, uh, Windows XP apparently can't actually get infected for the most part because it crashes instead of getting infected. And Windows 7 is uh, uh, accounts for 97% of infections. And and most of the rest are Windows 2008 uh, server. Well, what this tells us, as is often the case, is be careful believing the first reports of, uh, of a high visibility incident. Yeah. You never know. I mean... Yeah. And speaking of first reports, the other major report was that it was spread via email. Absolutely. I saw that repeatedly. In fact, a lot of uh, the incident response that I was involved with and in, in various organizations and such assumed that the initial propagation factor was email. So that was widespread and, and thought to be accurate. But but it was a network-based worm that, yeah. that used the, yes, the SMB vulnerability in, in uh, Eternal Blue. And, and by the way, I, I kind of think, and I've had a lot of discussions you know, between now and then, it, it, that really make it clear to me, there's an entire generation of people in IT and even security who really haven't lived through a worm. Yeah. Yeah, all of our... Uh, risk analysis and accepted risk uh, rarely accounted for a self-propagating worm like this these days. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I had people, I've had discussions with people saying, well, you know, the risk is is relatively low because we don't ask access email on, on that system or, right. or or what have you. And, and Well, and that's interesting because there was a bunch of assumptions, false, bad assumptions that went into a lot of those initial risk assessments and initial triage and and... Reactions, yeah, and, and that's the that's the concern that I wanted to raise. Is, you know, especially in these kinds of really significant. I mean, you know, look this this could have been. I mean, it was bad, right? No, no doubting it was bad, but it could have been a whole lot worse. It's not hard to imagine that it could have been a lot worse. But what strikes me is, you know, a, a lot of people were doing those risk assessments or the risk analysis, kind of ignorant about the you know the. You, a what it what it really was, and B what it it could have been. You know that that's and and this makes me think of if we get really reliant on threat intelligence or automated threat intelligence, what if you get a bad feed into one of your threat intel feeds and automate this sort of misinformation and bad response? Yeah, I mean it could drive you to shut off your email, right? Yeah, it, it, this one's interesting because there's so much speculation flying around, and uh, <laughs> you know, especially when everyday common press gets involved, it it gets ugly. Uh, and even some of the sophisticated or- organizations out there that are trying to respond to this don't necessarily have good information. And you know, the other thing I want to point out is that analysis of this and the, and the kill switch domain discovery and Propagation of all that, all happen 
by private individuals. I'm not trying to dog on government or, or any of these ISACs or whatnot, but this stuff happens so rapidly. Now, again, this is the double-edged sword because sometimes it happens rapidly with that information. But it happens so rapidly. A lot of these organizations that are trying to be the, the, the standard bearer of useful information are often so slow that private industry is far past them by the time they catch up and go through all of their uh, you know, bells and whistles and jump through all their hoops to publish whatever it is they want to publish. I, I mean, I don't mean to rip on U.S. CERT, but they published something, you know, as an urgent later. alert that I saw three days ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, so it's an interesting challenge. I don't, I don't know the answer to it, but it's something I did want to point out. Yeah, definitely. So, so one thing you mentioned that we hadn't talked about was the kill switch. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I, I, the big news, right, was that this this had this WannaCry malware, at least the the original in implementation of it, had a kill switch domain, and it's it's strongly believed that the kill switch was a you know an, an attempt at anti forensics. So basically, if you know it. it Tried the the malware tried to connect to this seemingly random, really long URL, and if it could connect to it, then it wouldn't run. Uh, but if it couldn't connect to it, then it would run. Well, I think that the, the the theory that the malware was operating under was, you know, that domain doesn't currently exist. So um, if if someone is running the malware in a sandbox, they're going to be proxying. Kind of all up on traffic, you know, and and accepting any kind of connections coming into it, and therefore, you know, it would just not run. So, uh, so, so that researcher that you were mentioning actually saw noticed that behavior, and I, I, I believe his, um, you know, what he was trying to do, because he saw that the malware was trying to to reach out and connect to it, he was trying to set it up as, as kind of a, um, you know, a counter, right. To figure right. out how many systems were being infected. Yeah, He was trying to like sinkhole the, the command and control maybe. Yeah. But, but what yeah. ended up happening was once he registered the domain, he quickly realized that the, the, you know, the malware wasn't infecting anymore or, you know, You're right. if, if it could connect to it, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, executing anymore so so interesting and then of course um you know, he registered the domain without the privacy flag on and so uh that was how the media got uh, you know got got in touch with him and took pictures of his house and and on and on and on and now he he went from like uh i don't know you know seventeen thousand twitter followers to like a uh, hundred thousand overnight so are you jealous? I'm a, I'm a little jealous, yeah. But, you know, to be fair, this this poor guy didn't want any of this. And, Correct. And has been hounded and, uh, you know, really has had a really bad experience dealing with the media and these different organizations. He's he's in he's in the UK. And anyway, it's a shame because he did good work and he doesn't deserve to be treated that way. Yep. So, um, so a couple of interesting things happened, you know, after – after that sinkhole, after that domain was registered, you know, it stopped, really stopped propagating. Um, but shortly after, a new version of it came out. Somebody released a new version. Maybe the same person, maybe not. The, the theory is somebody just changed a couple of, uh, you know, of, of bytes. 
in the executable and, and pushed it back out, but they, they changed to a different kill switch domain. And then a third version came out later, which apparently um, actually didn't work that that had that kill switch completely removed. But, you know, it was it was widely publicized as, you know, kill switches removed, but, um, you know, it actually wasn't a viable piece of malware. And then uh, then the latest piece of news is that the that the kill switch domain that the the original researcher registered is has apparently been under constant bar, um, bombardment by a uh, an offshoot of the Mirai botnet trying to take it down. So so clearly this means North Korea did it. Well that's obviously I mean who else? Right. Right. So so yeah, moving on to our next story. And for the record, by the way, there's a thousand more things we could talk about with WannaCry. Uh, we're just kind of picking and choosing here, so we're not here for hour, hours and hours and hours. But yeah, it's a uh... absolutely. So, uh, so speaking of shutting off your email, the next story we co- we have comes from PublicTechnology.net, and I, this was a, a really fascinating response to the WannaCry uh, outbreak. So, the um, th- this is a a, a county. In I think it's in the UK, called the Powys County Council. They shut off their email for a week. Um, you know they they ordered their um, uh, emails. Uh, they called their email supplier, but their their hosting company to you know to literally shut off their email for an entire week in response to this. And and again because they at the time thought it was. It was it was being propagated by email. Uh, allegedly, it, it's insinuated, but not really very clear. But apparently, this this county was uh, somehow infected. Right? We don't know how bad it was or whatever. But it's interesting that apparently they they must have. I'm guessing the county has developed a response plan. I'm I'm, I'm thinking like they they probably have taken our advice, you know, and and thought through how they would respond to this. And because you know, in in the past, this sort of thing propagates over email. This was apparently their their response. So interesting stuff. Go, yeah, yeah. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you have bad info and you take the wrong preventative or, or wrong containment step, that's almost as bad. As the, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. And this one, I think, because also the news just ran with this. Yes. Uh, I think it freaked a lot of people out. Maybe rightly. I mean, you might be able to argue that because it got so much widespread coverage and people knew to hopefully apply, no, hopefully knew that there were patches that could solve this. And so I'd be really curious to see, uh, you know, Microsoft's patch servers had a, you know, statistics of how much the uh, MS-17-010 patch was grabbed in the two days around this event. Oh, yeah. Uh, I bet it would be interesting. I can imagine. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, so I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I don't bring this up to, to poke fun at them. I, I, I'm actually more fascinated that they apparently had a, you know, a plan, even though it, the plan necess- didn't necessarily meet the, you know, the, the. Do we know it's a plan or was it just a, a knee jerk? I, we don't, we don't know for sure, but we okay. know, we do know that these NHS trusts have just been bombarded with 
uh, ransomware over the past couple of years. So it really wouldn't surprise me if it was a plan, but you know, don't know for sure. Yeah, that's fair. So anyway, um, you know, I, I, again, I think the, to me that, that kind of goes back to the point, the underlying point that you, you should have a plan, right? I mean, even, and, and, and by the way, I, I think the plans that you should have are kind of like building blocks, right? So, you know, and, and kind of escalating and maybe email, starting off your email is appropriate under, <laughs> under certain circumstances. So, Yeah, maybe it is the right move. I, I mean, back in the day, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, we used to see email worm propagations that yeah. were pretty insane. I mean, they Absolutely. were taking down whole mail systems. I love you. That was remember that that was a that was a great one. So good, yeah, good it, it's 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 a bit of a shame that we've lost some of that prior art knowledge, though. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So uh, so moving on to our next story, which comes from the Washington Post, and the title is "NSA officials worried about the day." its potent hacking tool would get loose than it did. But there's so much more in this story than that. Yes, there is. So um, yeah, so this this is a story about Eternal Blue, right, which was the, the, the vulnerability and the exploit code that was disclosed by the Shadow Brokers. In, you know, there, I don't think there's an official recognition by the NSA that this was that this was their code however they interviewed uh, or allegedly interviewed some f- current and former NSA employees who who basically confirmed that this in fact was a wildly successful <laughs> uh tool that they used and in, in fact they 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 actually say that uh let's see the that, that one of the quotes was the intelligence gathered by this tool was unreal and it was like fishing with dynamite i thought that was uh just kind of fascinating have you ever been fishing with dynamite yourself only once yeah okay yeah once is enough Mm -hmm. so first off one of the first things that this confirms that we never knew for sure this was nsa tools that shadow broker leaked uh leaked that that you know we never knew for certain now we know one of the many things suspected but never confirmed that is confirmed in this story. Yeah. Like there's some seriously juicy details in here. Absolutely. So, um, so they, you know, they go on to, to talk about how, uh, w- I guess early on after, after they discovered this vulnerability, there was apparently a lot of discussion and debate within the NSA about the continued use of this. Like the, you know, they, they, kind of recognized how significant a, a vulnerability this was. And so they debated whether or not they should tell Microsoft about it because, you know, if, you know, their, their fear was that if, if, um, you know, if somebody else found it or it was discovered through their use of it, that, um, you know, that their, their own systems would be vulnerable to, to foreign attacks. So, uh, there was a, there was a lot of you know, a lot of consternation about that, but in the end they kept, they continued using it. Uh, another thing that I thought was was pretty interesting, you know, we know the timeline. We talked about this on one of the last shows. We know the timeline that you know the Microsoft apparently became aware of this sometime prior to you know in the January February 2017 timeframe, and then released a patch for it in the March 
uh, Patch Tuesday, you know, and, and they but they didn't make any hay about it until after Shadow Brokers dumped their uh, dumped their stuff in mid-April. Um, going back into August of 2016, after the Shadow Brokers kind of came out big time, apparently there were some discussions within the NSA about you know, well they kind of. You know, it appears they got everything, and and and, it, and by the way, this the the current thinking is that these tools that the NS or that the shadow brokers are leaking were taken by the um, what was his name, uh, Harold Martin the third, right? He was the he was the guy who had like ten terabytes of NSA stuff on a on a hard drive at his. At his house, so these the, the thinking is that this the shadow brokers obtained the information somehow, some way uh, from from that guy. Now, as far as we know, it was not intentionally leaked by that guy. He was just Correct. sloppy with this code. He had it at home, right? And somehow, somebody without necessarily his knowledge accessed it and took it. Correct. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, we I don't I don't know we we really have. Even positive confirmation that that's a, you know exactly what happened. However, it, it's really the only thing that makes sense. But uh, be that as it may, it it appears like there was a there was kind of a recognition as far back as um, as, as August of last year. And in this this story, they talk about how they considered the utility of Eternal Blue and the other things in the you know in, in their toolkit as having a degraded capability. And and so now, at this point, you also start to wonder how much of this is disinformation. But if yeah. that's true, that's interesting. It it, that's, it is, and it, it kind of makes me wonder. Well, you know, why wouldn't they have gone? You know, why wouldn't they have gone to Microsoft much sooner? But then, but then, you know, so I, I guess there's probably a tit for tat game going on here too, because you know, um, I suspect that the shadow brokers may have released. Or, you know, they may have picked the timing of their release based on, you know, them realizing that Microsoft had patched it. It's possible. We don't know for sure. And so, so if, you know, it's conceivable that, let's say, Microsoft patched it in September or October of last year, that we may have just seen them dump this, you know, in November or, or, or what have you. So uh, we but don't know, also, right? It also tells us the timing uh, as it coincided with the the month that Microsoft skipped Patch Tuesday. Correct. Uh, which I don't don't think is a coincidence, especially because we figured out that the next round of patches fixed most of what was dumped. Uh, I think everything dumped by shadow brokers, and there was no attribution of those vulnerabilities as there normally is in those patch write ups. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say. That's when the NSA told Microsoft what was going on. Microsoft, rightly or wrongly, said, stop the patch, stop the presses, mm-hmm. and then built the patches. You know, what isn't clear, by the way, in, in Microsoft's defense, like, we don't know for sure that they realized where the vulnerabilities were coming from. Or, you know, the it, it yeah, could have it could have come in through, you know, to them through a third party or anonymously I, or, or what have you. Uh, that's the only thing that makes me suspect they knew it was U.S. government is because there was a lack of attribution on the on the vulnerability. 
Yeah. But you're right. So. We don't know for sure. We certainly don't know. Uh, and, and who knows? I mean, this could have been a goodwill gesture from the NSA to Microsoft because this is also in the context of a huge debate going on about backdoors and encryption and access to systems. And, you know, there's a lot of politics around this when you get to this level of, of negotiation around these sorts of things. Yeah. Definitely so. Uh, let's see. So, so there's a you know there's a there's a lot of discussion about kind of the politics of um, you know of these kinds of vulnerabilities, right? And and you know that one of the people they interview talk about how it's it's pretty ridiculous to think that um, it would be acceptable for for the NSA to just hand over all of the you know their quote stockpiled exploits and vulnerabilities and get them fixed and you know because they that's that's as they describe it in a unilateral disarmament right that, see i don't understand why they work because nobody patches anyway it's <laughs> a good point as we have seen in this episode right you know i i made a i made a comment on twitter that got some serious traction good and bad that this entire WannaCry episode has definitely demonstrated a large divided mindset between InfoSec blue team practitioners and what I would call InfoSec academics. And, you know, the academics are, are typically, and this is broad categorizations, but the ones saying, just patch, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you patch? <laughs> and, the, you know, the practitioners are going, if it were only that simple, and here's here's a laundry list of reasons why I couldn't patch. And there seems to be a huge divide uh, between these camps of understanding all the operational challenges and business realities of what prevents organizations from patching in a timely manner, whether we like it or not. And it seems like as long as we keep having this discussion of, well, it's your fault. You should have just patched. We're not really going to get probably the robust environments we need that that can patch rapidly there are solutions there are ways to do it there are ways to build the automation and and the, the uptime and the capability of having failover but these are expensive and they have to be thoughtfully designed from the beginning to do it uh and and business has to sign out i mean i cannot tell you how many security folks i are screaming at the top of the top of their lungs to fix patching and business is going now yeah, but so, I, I I wonder how much of that though, it, going back to the discussion we had a, a little bit ago, is based off of a you know a, a, a an outmoded version or or thinking about what the risk is, right? So sure, you know, so so if if you know if worms are going to come back in vogue, right? Are are we going to you know, is is industry going to view? more aggressive patching much more favorably than they currently do. Well, that's, I'm of the opinion in general that I would try to convince my business uh, leadership that we should push critical security patches for operating systems, browsers, office suites, Java, and Flash immediately upon release yep. because I think and, and the, the pushback on that is to workstations not necessarily to service but to workstations the typical pushback is well we have a we have a 
you know, we want to give it 72 hours to bake in uh, to make sure that there, there wasn't a mistake in the patch that causes other issues. Then we want to deploy it to our test group for, for a week and make sure that's fine. I understand that. that. That is a prudent operational uptime approach. And those methodologies were built when the window between a patch being released and an exploit was months. Now we're seeing it potentially in hours. And those are the most often attacked areas. And those, I think, are the risk of a disruption is far less than the risk of not patching and getting hit, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But that's a tough, tough sell, which is why we see so many organizations that, or, you know, maybe it's fine on the workstations, but tons of servers have a lot of trouble getting patched. Yeah, there's there's so many different reasons. So so I do want to you know I, I do want to go out in in land based uh, industry a little bit uh, on WannaCry, right? So so yes, I completely am with you on the patching thing, right? But as far as we know, WannaCry solely propagated over the you know over the network. By a TCP four four five, if I recall. Correct. Yes. Right. Which means <laughs> that people that, that organizations had systems exposed to the internet with port four four five open and accessible. Yeah. So what's the problem? I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this is one of those like engineering disaster things where well, there are so wonder... many things. There were so many opportunities for this not to happen. And I wonder if that's why the U.S. got such a light hit by this is because of, of extensive use of NAT and extensive use of firewalling and less prevalence of that in our, in our country than some of the other countries that are perhaps a little more. I think I, – I, I candidly – I actually think so. I mean there's been a lot of – you know, there's been a lot of hypothesis like, oh my gosh, actually WannaCry was – was released by the NSA. I mean, that, that's a that's actually a pretty popular theory, uh, and and therefore you know that's why it it was specifically made to not target the U.S. Actually, and you know as far as I know, that is that definitely not true. I mean, we don't know the source, so maybe it was the oh, NSA, right? Oh, but, you speak for the NSA now, do you? It, no, Are no. Are you a shill for the NSA? Is this entire show been a shill for the NSA? Is that what's really going on here? Well. I, I, Eventually, I was going to tell you. Is that our our secret hidden sponsor? Is that why we don't actually have sponsors? That's right. Wow. That's right. I'm on the take from Uncle Sam. I didn't did cut me in. Jeez. So anyway, um, <laughs> no, but but I I think um, I think in general, there's a there's a much bigger recognition that that's bad practice in uh, in U.S. companies than than in other countries. And the other thing I think probably more important is especially home ISPs in the, in the US yeah. don't allow port 445 inbound right. or or up on I don't think so so I think there were I think there were a confluence of of fortunate factors in the US that that probably saved our bacon but you know again like disabling smbv1 which has been the recommendation from Microsoft for a long long time that would have saved your bacon. 
you know, blocking port 445. What has saved your bacon? Applying the patch that came out eight weeks before WannaCry. What has saved your bacon? So. So what's interesting, too, to me is we're seeing some new press result coming out now that other more stealthy attacks against the same vulnerability are now having been observed in retrospect before WannaCry hit. Correct. WannaCry was very noisy. Right. So that, and that's the problem, by the way, with a worm. And probably why they fell out of favor is they're incredibly noisy. And when they're incredibly noisy, it, you know, it's like a virus. If, if a virus kills its host too quickly, it can't spread. Right. So we're, we are seeing some press of, uh, of an earlier version that was very stealthy. We're also seeing follow-up worms that are much more sophisticated based on similar exploits. Uh, so... Yeah, one of the one of the the early worms, I f- I forget the name of it, but it's got a funky a funky name to it. Um was actually a a cryptocurrency miner. Right. It it mines uh, Monero, Monero, I think that's how you say it. And by the way, uh, exploiting this vulnerability doesn't have to be a worm. Correct. That's just one vector yep. that has gotten popular because of the way it can can infect, but the the infection vector can be Many different things. It doesn't have to be a worm. Right. Yeah. It's. Yep. I don't know. And, and by the way, there there apparently weren't a lot of people paying, and even those that paid, apparently uh, the ransom that is, apparently didn't actually get their uh, uh, get their files back. I've heard conflicting reports on that, and I've heard I've heard reports too that the, <laughs> that it was a very manual process to actually create the decryption keys that there was no automated system so some have speculated that this was a far more successful ransomware worm than was envisioned or planned for by the authors yeah but who knows it's tough it's tough I, to i i have uh, i have heard from uh some some reliable sources that the the crypto used was actually done really well though that but they did um they did make some, you know, some mistakes, which uh, which allowed recovery of some of the, uh, I don't know what you would call it, tags, you know, the data that was used to create right. the RSA key, right? But but yeah. the system had to be still running. Right, right, right. We've seen that in XP and I think a few other OSs now that people have figured out if the box hasn't been rebooted since the actual encryption of the files, you can recover the key. Correct. Yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, that's that one. And moving on to our next story, this one comes from Graham Cluley's blog, GrahamCluley.com. And the title here is, interestingly, Companies Keeping Bitcoin on Hand in Case of Ransomware Attacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also predicted by this show. Also predicted. I still think that ATMs are a much more you know, fiscally responsible solution rather than keeping your capital tied up in Bitcoin for the, the, you know, the off chance that you might get infected. Sure. Because apparently 57%, according to a Citrix study in 2016, 57% of British companies that have between 500 and 1,000 employees keep a stockpile of Bitcoin on hand for the purposes of recovering, um, you know, uh, uh, ransomware files. Well, if they bought it, you know, more than a couple of months ago, they've seen a hell of an appreciation on that investment. That's true. That's very true. 
<laughs> that's very true. But you know, part maybe maybe that's why we're seeing the appreciation is <laughs> everybody's, uh, everybody's buying classic, it up. Classic bubble. It, it is definitely a classic bubble. But you know, the 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 author here goes on to point out that it's kind of sad, a, a sad state of affairs that you know they would invest in Bitcoin rather than just making sure their data is backed up. Maybe maybe they're doing both. I, I don't know, man. They're planning. They're hoping for the best and planning for the worst. Is this de- defense in depth? This is, this is what defense in depth is, isn't it? Uh, it's more like cynicism in depth. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and then on a happier note, our, our yeah. last... <laughs> We have happy notes. Our last story. Yeah, you were at Disney. It's the happiest place on earth. Our last story comes from eweek.com, and the title here is Zomato. I guess that's how you say it. Zomato and DocuSign breaches reveal common security risks. So, you know, just like traditional garden variety breaches here that we, we can talk about now. So, uh, so, so DocuSign. I don't know if this is a global company, but but here in the U.S., it's a um, it's a uh, electronic signature company, right? So, if you wanted to sign a a rental agreement or you know, some kind of a, a contractual document, DocuSign has a, a you know a, a solution where you can do that electronic signature. And apparently, they had uh, some number some undisclosed number of email addresses uh, stolen from, from one of their databases. Now, apparently no other information, no names or passwords or social security numbers. But the email addresses were enough it, it, because if you think about it, you know, what do we tell people? What do we, what do we tell the average user about, you know, phishing? We tell them don't open an email that you don't aren't expecting. Right. Right? So if you are on DocuSign's email distribution list it's probably because you're expecting an email you're probably (laughs) expecting an email from them and so they send you an email which by the way has a link that will attempt to install malware and it looks like it's a docusign email and it looks like a docusign email so yep you get it you get an email that looks like it came from docusign you're probably expecting an email from docusign and you probably get uh, some kind of ransomware so it's chock chock full of goodies. That's amazing. But you know the the the, the thing that struck me on this is, you know, the, the advice of not opening emails from or, you know of, of only opening emails that you're expecting is becoming less and less relevant as as yeah. time goes on. Well, the bad guys are getting smarter about manipulating the expectations of their victims. Yeah. And and this is why I go back to sure you can train and you can inform your users all day long, but the bad guys are going to keep finding ways to socially engineer our users to opening malicious emails. We have to wrap technical controls around that problem. Yep. Yep. And then um, and then Zomato or Zomato, I don't know how you how you say that. Uh, who's a restaurant guide? Um, I guess it'd be like Yelp, I, I suppose. Uh, they were they were uh, breached. I'm, I'm glad you did a, some some good research before the show. You yeah. could have you know done a Google or two. Oh, whatever. You mean Just on the say. on the pronunciation? Whatever. 
whatever. So, uh, so they had 17 million user accounts stolen, uh, email addresses and hashed passwords mm-hmm. with, with assault, assault on top. Uh, and and a, a, what was really interesting about this story was apparently they, they were in touch with the, their attacker. Uh, and, and their attacker was apparently cooperative so long as oh. they agreed to, to start up a, a bug bounty on their website. So it's a retroactive bug bounty. Interesting. <laughs> you know, this is, we used to see this a lot where people would find vulnerabilities and call up companies and be like, you know, I found this. You should pay me. Uh, that, uh, that doesn't appear to be what's going on here. So, so this appeared to be um, some questionable person uh, having penetrated their system and stolen their data and and basically saying, you know, you really need to go start a bug bounty. They don't. It didn't appear like they were trying to extort money out of them. It was interesting. It's, it was more like they <laughs> they were trying to bully them into. Uh, <laughs> they were breach shaming them. Yes, into, uh, exactly. Into a bug bounty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, so uh, you know. Quick aside, NIST came out with recommendations to do away with regular password changes and it's getting a lot of traction. And this is why I disagree with that guidance between phishing, password databases, leaking, whatnot, the chances of your one unique password (laughs) staying secret for any length of time, I think is near zero. And so if we assume passwords are going to get leaked and people reuse passwords, we have to keep changing them because we have to, you know, at some point cap the time before that password becomes leaked. In other words, you know, if I use this password a couple of different places and, and then I reuse it in my corporate environment, I don't have to change it out in, in the world. But, you know, then Zomato gets popped and it's the same password I'm using out there that I'm using in my corporate environment. My corporate environment doesn't make me change my password. I've got a real problem at that point. Mm-hmm. And so if I look at the common behavior of common people, they're going to use the same password. If we don't force them to change it, they're going to use the same password everywhere unless they've adopted using a password manager in general. So even when people come back and say, well, you know, forcing people to change their password in the corporate environment leads to bad passwords because they just iterate. I'm like, that's okay. In my mind, that's actually okay because at least it's different enough that they can't just do a one-shot replay and use it. Well, you know, then people might write down their password. I'm like, that's okay too. My problem is not necessarily Bob in the next cubicle getting your password anymore. My problem is, is you know, a guy in Russia getting ten thousand passwords. It, it is, it is, uh, it is so interesting to me that we have we've come full circle now, where it's actually preferable for people to write down their password, and as long as it's, you know, as long as it's secure and unique. I, I, by the way, and I get that there are very smart, reasonable people on the complete opposite side of this argument. I get that. Uh, but I, I'm struggling with this one because that's the side of it I see. And I'm really struggling with people adopting this advice because of how often passwords are either getting leaked, stolen, or, or, or reused. Well, if, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I haven't read the entire NIST document, but I, I, I think one of their, one of their updates – 
the other side of that guidance is is a requirement for the passwords to be unique across sites. And, yeah, but I, but I think but I think the challenge is you have you know in your scenario right you you only control the thing you control. Right. Right. You can't control like my employer can't control me using the same password on you know all those other uh, on you know Gmail or or you know Yahoo or or wherever they 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 can't do it. I mean, you can say that that's the policy, but you know my employer can't doesn't have a reasonable way to enforce that because they they don't you know they can't they can't see into into Gmail or you know any of the ten billion other places that I might drop my password. Right. So that I think that's the you know that's the that, which by the way I think kind of goes back to. The point that NIST's guidance is really very specific to a certain set of 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 systems. I mean, it's not intended to be like broad industry guidance, even though it's, that's how it's used. Right. right. Ex- exactly. That's what's happening. So I don't. Know. I, I know it's an aside, but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, back to multi-factor authentication. That's like that's <laughs> or or. You know the other the other thing that I've become I'm becoming more more warm to this solution. You know where where multi-factor authentication just doesn't work for whatever reason, and that's generating a password for for them for someone. I mean, because then you can, you know, I mean, yeah, they they could go in and you know use the password you generated for them on Gmail, right? But <laughs> it's probably unlikely. Uh, password managers, man, it's 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 the only. Correct, but that forces. If you do that, by the way, it it almost forces them to use a password manager. Yeah. So maybe, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, or, or they're going to write it on a post-it note, which again is still better than than having uh you know to, than using the same password on on Yahoo. So anyway, that that's that's all the stories we had for tonight. <laughs> and we'll end on a password rant. Yay! Yeah. So um yeah we'll we'll, we'll try to uh, get back on schedule again uh you know sorry but uh, you know there it is. I, I'll be on the, the tough part about working in infosec and you know as a full-time job and doing this as as a secondary thing is when the most interesting things, things seem to happen in infosec is when we're busiest <laughs> Yeah yeah I when uh, when WannaCry hit I I I entered the twilight zone for about 4 days and and I I, I came out and I really didn't know which which way was up or down so <laughs> yeah this is i mean unless some rich person wants to just pay us you know 250k a year just to do podcasting i'm down there i'm down with that yeah, that's right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway um that's the show thank you very much for listening we'll uh you know we'll we'll uh like i said we'll try to get back on schedule i think you're out this you're gone this weekend so it'll you know, maybe middle of next week or or I am. We can't. I'm hopping off, hopping off to the islands. That's that should be fun. And uh, just a just a, a shout out to our Patreon donors. Thank you very much. Yes. Always appreciate it. Um, we're we both have DerbyCon tickets. So if you're going to be at DerbyCon, we will see you there. That's true. True gonna, story. Going to be great. Uh, and and there's this little conference in New York. Oh, that's right. That's right. The, uh, that we should be at. Yeah, that's right. The um, O'Reilly Security Conference. It's a, hol- it's a Halloween weekend again. Yep. That should be great. 
Mm-hmm. Lots of fun. Uh, and uh, just you know, if you wanted to find links to the stories we talked about, you can go to our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we'll talk again next time. Thanks. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, bye-bye. Bye-bye.